Who doesn't love a good stick figure drawing? But they don't exactly shout, I'm a professional therapist, do they? See what professional exercise prescription software looks like with a three-month free trial on us. Discover how easy it is to fully customise patients' rehabilitation plans whilst choosing from hundreds of exercise pictures and videos, each with modifiable descriptions. You can even send them out by email or WhatsApp. Plus, you get inbuilt virtual consultation software as standard. Claim your free trial now at rehabmypatient.com forward slash physiomatters. You're listening to the Physio Matters podcast in association with rehabmypatient.com. And this is session 101. Welcome back to Physio Matters. I'm still Jack Chu. And when we retired the monthly Physio Matters podcast, we did say we would bring you some special podcasts now and again. We kept the feed ticking over. We've been moving some of my live chewing it over podcasts that we've been doing twice a week onto the feed, as well as our partner shows. And it's, it gives me great pleasure to get back behind the saddle of a long form interview with none other than Lorimer Mosley. Now, we've had Lorimer on the show before. Flick interviewed him uh, about the, when he was in, last in the UK uh, for Flipping Pain, as well as then having um, worked with him before at IFOMT 2016. Uh, but this was the first time really, I'd, especially in a while, I'd had a chance to have a, a decent chat with him about all things, particularly around uh, how he sees things moving and going, how he accounts for some of the critiques of his own work, as well as then uh, where the pain science field is going in how it intersects with therapy and performance him and his team have a new master sessions course which is over the 17th to the 21st of november and it goes across it spans time zones they manage it really well it's an online event where they span different time zones and make it really accessible and so go to lesspainbetterperformance.com to sign up and register for what is inevitably going to be cutting edge content from Lorimer and his team it's really interesting in this interview to be able to discuss with him not just the ways in which this works with his work applies to people with complex and persistent pain but also how this will span across all different levels and athletic processes and something that really can help with human performance from basic ADL function through to high-end elite sports. So hope you enjoyed this interview with Lauren Mosley. I'll be back at the end to tell you about a few other exciting updates, including our latest uh, therapy live plans, which uh, we have had some major changes to and a new website that's out soon as well. So very exciting times. I'll see you at the end for more on that. And in the meantime, I bring you Lauren Mosley. Delighted to be here today with Lorimer Mosley. Uh, Lorimer, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. So I know that uh, on, on many of these shows, including mine, the, the first question ends up being sort of giving a potted history of your biography, et cetera. But I know that that exists in plenty of spaces elsewhere. So if you don't mind, I wondered if I could jump straight in and ask, what are your current roles, responsibilities and priorities as they stand? What are you up to and how do you balance your time right now? Wow, lots of lots of questions in there. Um, so my current roles and responsibilities—that's an easy one. I can rattle them off. So I'm I'm currently director of a, a body called Impact in Health, which stands for Innovation, Implementation, and Clinical Translation in Health at the University of South Australia. We we're 
we're driving towards real world better outcomes for people with with four grand health challenges with one of those four uh, persistent pain stroke recovery persistent breathlessness uh, and the rural metro health divide and um, I guess my it won't be any surprise to anyone that that my main interest in there is the persistent pain group so I lead that group here at the University of South Australia uh, I run a non-for-profit called Pain Revolution um, and I am officially a Bradley Distinguished Professor at University of South Australia, which uh, hopefully sounds posh. Uh, very, sounds very distinguished. I think it's meant to be. Uh, anyway, so that's, that's what I do. And, and our research group, uh, we do stuff only on humans. So anything from experiments on uh, live humans where we... Um, we might do something to them and ask them what it feels like, or we might record their brain activity after they do something or we do something to them. All, all of these things are around understanding the problems that people with um, pain uh, mani manifest with, or um, ultimately we're looking for new treatment targets. And then the next phase in that journey is if we've found a new treatment target, we try and work out a way to treat it. Uh, and if we can find out a way to treat it, we then test that in a clinical trial. And if we can uh, demonstrate its effectiveness in a clinical trial, we then move it to implementation, which is changing clinical practice or taking it to the wider world. And that's where Pain Revolution comes in. So we're, we're a not-for-profit that supports rural and regional healthcare professionals to implement best practice. So that's the things I, I do. Uh, and then the last part of the question, I think, was more about um, the sort of research questions. Have I... Yeah, well, I mean, it was roles, responsibilities and priorities. Wow. Well, the priorities, um, I, think that, I think they, for me, they're the same as the most interesting things for me. I think if, if it was roles, responsibilities and most interesting things, they, they would align as well. And ultimately, I'm... I feel like I'm on a very steep learning curve with uh, improving the way we teach people about pain, uh, improving the way we we uh, exploit inbuilt bioplasticity across human systems. Um, now, there's a bit of jargon there. So increase, how, how do we exploit the human's capacity or, or drive for change better? Uh, and there I'm thinking priorities-wise, I'm thinking in their understanding of the problem. I think the data are coming in thick and fast now to say that when people do learn uh, a contemporary understanding of, of mind, body, pain, those sorts of things, then they have better outcomes. But the data are also coming in to say we haven't been very good at imparting that understanding and we need better ways to do that. So I'm quite excited about that. Um, and then I'm, you know, I'm really excited about the other end of stuff uh, with with pretty theoretical models of of how it is that uh, aspects of the human, for example, the the variability within biological systems is a a resilience and or a vulnerability factor, and that's um, that, that's sort of tougher conceptually and and hard to plan experiments. Part of that 
is is this bunch of experiments we've been doing for a long time on classical conditioning and they're really hard experiments to to do uh, and i love trying to find out ways to ask questions that are really difficult to answer uh, yeah how does that go is that a, is that a well-rounded view well there's certainly plenty yeah and and i think it, it certainly teased me up for me my next one which is then what role or line of work have you enjoyed most in your career? Wow. Um, jeepers. I, uh, I, there's, there's almost nothing in my job that I don't enjoy. Uh, and I enjoy most things in my job equally. So, um, if, you know, if I was to write, <laughs> write a job description for how I'd like to be spending my time when I was, you know, in my early 50s, which I am now, and get paid for it, it'd be very similar to what my actual job description is. Um, I guess at the, at the core of it all is that uh, every day I work with clever, kind and community-minded people, and all three of those things turn me on. Um, and I, I'm... I'm I think I'm a creative person and I'm able to do research in a scientific framework that uh, that utilises that creativity. So I get a lot of enjoyment out of that. Uh, but, but there's almost nothing that I, that I would be really out of place in answer to that question, Jack. You know, I'd, you know, I'd absolutely love turning on the... I turned on the f- football on the television, it's final series here in the AFL and... I see people running around out there that that I met when they were in, you know, a really dark place, about to retire, and here they are doing great, just doing amazing human performances, and uh, that really, really rocks my belly. I just get really excited about that. Um, so that was a very topical thing. One of the things that, and the reasons for that question is because very few people have such a breadth from the depths of neuroscience research through to the pragmatic application and being literally on a bike in a peloton that goes to a rural community to then actually advocate the application of that at the grassroots, right? And there's, there's everything in between from education of therapists to education of patients. to And, and, and it's just that that's, that breadth makes me wonder whether or not you have any, is that out of, um, a sense of, of, of duty is that a sense of that's how you prefer things to be or, or is it that you know, wonder if there's any corner of it that you have as a preference <laughs> um, I think that yeah the, any corner of it that I have as a preference I don't think so um, I think any component of it that I did way more than I do I think it would reduce the enjoyment um, I, I've always been someone uh, that enjoys change and enjoys sort of lots of things on the go. So um, I think if, if I was to really embed myself in one aspect of my work, I would find it less satisfying. Uh, and I think I'd, I'd feel less effective at it as well, I think. I think it's that some, some aspects of that breadth, they really feed each other. For example, you know, you're talking about the you know, actually literally being in the peloton and going to country towns and, and getting up, in front of a hundred members of the public with all sorts of trouble and, and entertaining them with pain science. 
uh, and and the the scientifically based hope of contemporary models of care uh, is is very good for my research right at the other end of the system of of this work system that I'm involved with. You know, the, those conversations and those even those those expressions on people's faces when I when I say something that doesn't land uh, is a is a trigger for a new question in the lab uh, and and the conversations that happen. So, you know, we often present all this, whenever I'm talking about this to granting bodies and things like that, I have a spiel that starts with, you know, our research group, uh, our research traverses the translational pipeline from <laughs> fundamental human systems experiments to implementation. But we could easily say that it traverses the, the same pipeline back in the other direction, you know, where where the, the challenges that a healthcare professional in the bush, so in rural areas, a lone practitioner, um, the struggles that they're having implementing best care or the struggles they're having with with all their, their shearers with, with chronic back pain or whatever, starts the conversation you know i meet i meet those people and and we have mm. a conversation and that and that goes back down the other line so so what is the problem here and how can we address that problem and you know it's really not a pipeline it's like a revolving you know merry-go-round or, or carousel of mm. of stuff uh but you asked whether i feel a duty um i don't i don't feel a duty that's a burden in any way but i I do have a strong conviction that science is only as good as its capacity to improve the human condition. Right. And a scientist of the sort that I am, you know, an, an applied uh, human systems and then clinical scientist, that I think that comes with a, with a very clear responsibility to not waste time on getting this to the people whose lives can benefit now from it mm, yeah. uh, and if we are to rely on the on the conventional pathways which is effectively scientific articles textbooks university degrees uh accreditation bodies i don't know they, i mean there are stats that people throw around about 17 years from discovery to human impact and um you know that i, I feel <laughs> i feel a little bit like well what a waste <laughs> like a, that's a quarter of my life or a fifth of my life or something let's let's get it out there now and and things like pain revolution but also the other things i've been involved with like body and mind when it was running mm. you know they're very much motivated by uh, my deep respect and i love for the scientific method as a way of generating knowledge uh, and the potential impact that can have on on a human somewhere right now so let's do our best to get that knowledge yes. to those humans that that can benefit and so if we can if we can zoom in a little bit on some of the sort of foundational dare i say sort of talking points they're not just talking points of course they're sort of areas of of, of deep thought and neuroscientific understanding of, of pain in more recent decades and 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 sort of get your any updated thoughts you have on them and so for for example one phrase that's uh, sort of certainly followed you around a little bit is whether nociception is necessary or sufficient for pain could we just revisit that as to what is your take on that and has it evolved or matured in recent times uh yeah it's certainly evolved and i, I really hope it's matured um i still stand by the the statement that nociception is neither sufficient nor necessary for pain. Uh, 
Um, and I think the evidence, the evidence to to support that is very compelling. Uh, but I guess sitting around that question is is a deeper understanding. I feel like I have a deeper understanding of uh, signal generation in the periphery by different types of neurons. So if we were to talk about free nerve endings, uh, you know, those those neurons in the periphery or in the tissues of the body that uh, do not innovate specialised mechanoreceptors. Um, and we call them free nerve endings because the, the last little bit of the A-delta fibres doesn't have myelin, but it doesn't have a a specialised mechanoreceptor and the C fibres have have no myelin or have a different myelin structure and the the that that group of neurons uh, I'm I'm fascinated by them and I'm no you know I, I'm now asking questions or well, we're asking questions in our research group uh, and and I guess we're engaged in those conversations with research groups who are actually their expertise is on those neurons, right? I, I don't do experiments on those neurons, um, but those those conversations are more around um, what what is nociception. I mean, how how do we make most sense of 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 how the periphery encodes data? Uh, and you know, for example, the I, I I don't think nociception is an on or off event. Um, I think that it's it's better to think about nociception as an, an extraordinary data capture facility that has both digital properties and analog properties. And what I mean by that is that there there's a wide range of different kinds of free nerve endings that have anywhere from a very low threshold, so they're very easily activated, um, to a very high threshold, which means that they're not very easily activated. They have a wide range of, of delays between presentation of the stimulus and activation of the neuron. Uh, so some of them are very quickly adapting to the stimulus, some are very slowly adapting. Some of them stay on when the stimulus is finished, some, some cut out immediately. Uh, and in no physiologically um, predictable situation do nociceptors do their thing outside of the rest, the rest of the sensory detection and encoding system. I mean, the, the I'm blown away. Even as I think about it now, Jack, I'm just I'm just blown away by the the extraordinary complexity, even of detection of a tissue event. Uh, when I talk about this with with you know in a teaching capacity with um, health professionals or other scientists or the general public, I'd often use a phrase of of the symphony of data that arrive at the spinal cord. And what I'm trying to capture there is, you know, I guess 15 years ago, we were, we were all floored by the extraordinary capacity of the brain and this orchestra in the brain that uh, was very complex and could produce these symphonies of outputs. And, you know, that degree of complexity I now associate with the peripheral detection system, most obviously nociceptors, uh, and the complexity increases the closer you get to consciousness. So, you know, I, I don't <laughs> don't even begin to think we're close to understanding how, how spinal cord processing of incoming data works. 
uh, and then we've got to go up to the brain and then it gets more complex again. But if I was to ask which of yeah, which of which of them could I ask if which of them would you in the fullness of time would you be most confident would hold up like which is more like a better way of putting that would be which would be more likely to potentially need revision so the necessity or sufficiency like do you have more confidence that nociception is not necessary for pain or more confident that nociception is not sufficient for pain i have i have very high confidence in both of those things um but if if I you haven't given me permission to do this, Jack. But if I change the question just slightly to say in in the real clinical world, and this is what I'm always interested in, and this is why I I make sure I still see a few patients every week to you know not lose track of those things. In the in the real life clinical world, uh, how often do do I think we encounter people in pain who have no who don't have primary nociception going on uh, or how many times do we encounter people who do have primary nociception going on but don't have pain? Um, if Those sort of questions are easy because we never see the second group because they've got no reason to come and see us. Right? So people without people might have raging primary nociception, but if they don't have pain, then we're not going to see them. Uh, and in the former group, then I think... I think there's really compelling evidence that as as pain persists and as the other inputs into a complex um, danger evaluation, protection evaluation system, uh, then people can have pain when there there is there's really no reasonable evidence that they would be having a primary nociceptive event. Uh, so I don't know if, if I've skirted your your question a bit there. Um, I suppose I wouldn't I wouldn't let you fully skirt it, and I don't think you have. But I suppose I, I will admit that when I think about, and I think it could be well biased by, as you say, patient selection as to who's likely to seek my my help. But the nociception not being sufficient for pain feels instinctively something that would be so unlikely to need any major revision whereas i feel like perhaps in the fullness of time we come to understand that nociception again if we depending on how that term is defined could be understood to be present in enough cases through mechanisms that are yet to be understood the better understanding of neuroimmune features the better understanding of, of of how these things can sort of linger and loiter even in persistent cases means that I, I don't know it's just my my hunch being that if someone held a gun to my head and made me choose which of those statements held up better then I feel like the sufficiency feels like it's on firmer ground but then again that's why I, I admit what's what's underneath that question is a wonder as to whether or not you have any variable confidence intervals on each of those statements. <laughs> uh, yeah well I, I love the gun to the head example um and I think I'd go the same way if I had to pick one of those two things. <clears throat> and that I think that reflects scientific uh, method, right? So uh, it's it's a lot easier for us to um, do something that we know is activating nociceptors and observe the human experiencing no pain and reporting no pain. Uh, so we've got immediate access to proof of the the presence of nociception without the presence of pain uh, but 
so it's very easy for us to uh, evaluate whether an individual is in pain. Uh, you know, in in the vast majority of cases, uh, but it's very hard for us to demonstrate that there is no nice exception. So, um, I think you're right. I think that that there are there there are many potential avenues for us gaining new information about what might be happening inside neurons in the human. We don't have the capacity yet to. Uh, get data on that very easily. Um, I mean, it's very it's it's very challenging even to get data on what's happening in a in a peripheral nerve. We use uh, in, uh, intraneural electrodes for that, but we not being me, um, we being the scientific community. But that's that's really challenging and not very specific and all that sort of stuff. So there's a limitation of the scientific method that. Um, yeah, it just means that the, uh, the the ease of seeing whether someone's in pain or not is is just way higher than the ease of seeing whether there's no exception or not. And you mentioned almost in passing, you know, uh, about no exception. However, we define that. I actually think that's a critical question for your broader question, because without a shared understanding of what we mean by no exception, then we it's always going to be ambiguous and challenging to have a shared understanding about a concept that integrates that. Um, and I guess there, there, are, there are different schools of thought on what nociception is. Um, you know, some people would limit it to the primary nociceptors that innervate body tissue and terminate within the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. Uh, some would include projections from the dorsal horn of the spinal cord up into the brain as, as encoding or, or transporting, if you like, nociception. Others would talk about neural networks in the brain, neuroimmune networks in the brain, as being part of nociception. On the other end, some would say, well, it's only some of those primary nociceptors sitting in tissue that carry nociception. So there's five distinct, uh, well-populated groups within the scientific community who already don't agree on what nociception is. We're all trying to use some of the same language, and that's where def definition of terms, as you rightly said, even on nociception, can, can make it confusing and, and lead to sometimes people talking past each other rather than truly engaging and being able to, to disagree on the same format. Pain is another one of those things whereby philosophically it's quite challenging in a sense that that is a word being used across cultures in, in various different translations to describe a sensation that realistically we, we are going to need to trust who describes themselves to have pain to have pain gives a sense of vagueness in the challenges of just linguistics um is is that something that you when when, when you were to say how, how might you identify whether someone has pain or not do you know as a, as a neuroscientist or do you have any confidence in anything that would be more more accurate than self-identification with that term no and would you ever feel it's tempting for us to pursue that? Yeah, no, it is tempting. It would be, it's a very attractive idea. Um, and it is being pursued, right? So there are, there are actually vast resources going into um, scientific programs to get the neural signature um, of pain. So we can, we can take a scan and decide 
how much pain someone's in and and what it's like and all that. There are people doing the same thing, looking at molecular patterns within blood, so taking blood tests to decide whether someone's in pain or not. Um, this is um, this is a really challenging area of research, in my view, in part because uh, of the what strikes me as an extraordinary redundancy within biological systems, not just the nervous system, um, in in its capacity to produce protective outputs. Uh, and so what I mean by that is that uh, within an individual, uh, there are clearly multiple ways that that, in, that biological system can produce uh, pain uh, and, and identical pain. Um, and the reason we know that is that there is there is always some degree of variability in in any scanning technique we've got, like functional scanning technique we've got. There is always individual variability that uh, does not follow the variability in the percept. Right. Uh, do you think I've expressed that accurately? Mm. No, I'm I, think, sure. I think I follow. But we could, but we could be both wrong. <laughs> I'm sure we are both. We're definitely both not completely right, but um, that's the beauty of science, right, Jack? Mm -hmm. That we're obliged to be wrong. Um, but I, you know, that question is is being presented as we speak in in several ways around the world um, because it is it is a seductive idea that we could measure pain without the individual telling us anything and there are some really profound pockets of clinical care where that would be so useful one of my phd students at the moment emily moore is doing doing her work looking at how people with complex communication needs including people who can't talk uh, can communicate to us about their pain and now if we had some scan blood test or thing we could put on them that will give us a readout yeah the, those pe the lives of those people would be transformed um that'd be fantastic uh, and there are other people pursuing that so that we can we can detect the liars <laughs> i wondered if you were going to go there that, that was the thing i was going to say you end up with quite an quite there's some real obvious social and ethical upsides that you've outlined really, really well there. But there's also that, I think one of the almost aversions to even the pursuit of that knowledge kind of, I worry about the social consequences of what that mean between someone then having their self-identification with both that terminology and their experience that they are naming pain to then be sort of, well, that doesn't marry to this objective reading that we have from, from some say combination of, of, of scans and, and other supposedly empirical tests that that would then be seen as a contrast that the gap between those two things is therefore your deception um and and that the, the, there is some sort of you end up in that very dated um but still existent accusation of malingering or somehow um social gaming and but then equally i quickly check myself and realize that my fear of social consequence of some of that 
should not necessarily decrease the pursuit of the scientific truth of what we might be able to identify. And so I, I kind of have these grappling ethics there, or consequentialist ethics versus the pursuit of, of truth on a, on a scientific level. And I know that if I'm experiencing that as in, in, in my small part, then I, I wonder, do you have, have that on steroids? <laughs> well, um, these are these are what our group calls cab sav conversations, and uh, <laughs> we have a significant wine budget for that very reason. But um, I think you've, you know, I really resonate with what what you're describing for yourself there, Jack, because I think um, if we just stuck with the with the risk benefit appraisal. Um, there are significant risks and significant benefits, significant potential risks and significant potential benefits. I think with this with this particular issue, um, I think we're saved a little bit from that um, because at the moment I, I just don't see it on the horizon. I mean, maybe, maybe one day we'll get there, but um, the, I mean the 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 organ that's that. It, that last touches it, if you like, you know. So when you have pain, I, I do. I've I've all I've been accused by people who I have deep respect and 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 love for, of being a neurocentric person, and I like to think that I'm becoming a neuroimmune centric person. But um, if if you'll bear with me while I just talk about the the brain as the the last bit of the last organ, if you like, of the human before we experience this conscious feeling that we call pain mm -hmm. and, and that we all call our pain and all that. The, I mean, I, I, it turns me on every time I think about it, the, the complexity of our brains, just our brains, mm. let alone all, all the rest of the system that the, the brain is integrated with. The complexity is such that we are we are so far away from being able to measure stuff that I think we would have to measure to to be able to make these calls. Um, you know, it's, we're, we're, it's a very different scenario from comparing, uh, you know, using machine learning in a big bunch of uh, let's say healthy humans and and healthy otherwise healthy humans with back pain. Uh, and use machine learning with all these scans and heaps and heaps of data and eventually we'll be able to show using a scan we'll be able to say well that person there they were in pain that person there they weren't um that's you know that's sort of where we're at uh, and and we can get to the stage of of linking it to the intensity of pain reported by that person but uh, i always think here of of uh yeah, my, my dear friend Gian Domenico Alessandro Magnifico Fantastico Ionetti, now at University of Roma, uh, and his exasperated, uh, slightly Italianized English at at the failure across our community to remember the reverse inference problem, and that that problem is that it is it is one thing to be able to show pain of five out of ten is is different from no pain. It's a very, very different proposition to show that pain of five out of ten is different from everything else. Mm -hmm. And that's we are we're stuck with that 
and we're a long, long way away from that. But you can you can put a hot thermode on the back of of almost anyone and ask them what it feels like, and they say five out of ten, and then you can tell them a funny joke, and in moments of telling that joke, that, that individual is pain free, mm-hmm. entirely pain free. And then after the funny joke where they've cucked themselves and it's just fantastic, you ask them what your pain like, now they might say it's four and then it goes back up to five. Now, you want to make it a short joke because they'd probably get a third-degree burn if it was a long joke. But <laughs> uh, do you know this? The the And I guess what I'm getting at is that the incredibly precise and nuanced capacity that the human develops over the course of their life in differentiating different feelings. Uh, and communicating them and the it seems to me that we are so far away from that uh, that it's probably more of a reason for us to be really respectful of the risks the potential risks of forgetting things like the reverse inference problem and and over generalizing really exciting neuroscience research or or in fact um, blood sampling research really exciting stuff but overgeneralizing that to start making statements about this person's you know lying or this person's malingering mm. or yeah you know sidestepping the human because after all it's it's almost you know it's the human who experiences pain it's not actually the the organism you know it's not the the individual structures it's this fearfully and wonderfully complex unified uh, self, you know, what, what is it to be me? It's, it's me who feels the pain, you know, it's not, it's not my, my back. Mm. And that's the mystery of the mystery of consciousness, of course, that means that we we know how far away we are from, from, from solving that. And that probably does at least buy us time, but, but does mean that it's only right for us to grapple with those ethics and, and try to make sure we're appropriate. And you're right. We've not got nearly enough alcohol on the table for us for, for, for now to, to get stuck as far into that as we might like to. Um, I wonder if I can ask, and I feel like I know you work enough to, to sense your, your answer to this question, but I'd be interested in uh, visiting your answer as well as then why not the other in, in that is pain a perception or a sensation? <laughs> uh, yeah, this is a really active um well, it's not a really active debate. It's a, it's a, it's very active debate among, I think, a, a pretty small portion of the community who is grappling with, with what I think are different understandings of the same words again. Um, right, yeah. So the answer, my answer to that question is, well, it all depends on what school you've you've come from, um, and which particular philosophers or physiologists or psychologists you might want to align yourself with. So uh, I can really only answer that that with, well, my, the way that I differentiate those two things is that uh, sensation refers to the uh, activation of neurons and the encoding and, and uh, transmission of neural signals. Perception is, yeah, the way I make sense of that, um, I mean, you can even go different different um, breadths of this but in order to contrast it with sensation I would say perception is is the thing we experience um, so we uh, we see things so we perceive things uh, that's visual in my view that's visual perception 
uh, our retinas respond to various wavelengths and send messages along optic nerves which get into the occipital cortex uh, and that's in my view uh, visual sense uh, but it's it's highly troublesome right thing to talk about because we also use in our day-to-day -day language i've got this weird sensation um and you know i think so is it really that or is it a weird perception and and this is where the word, in my view, the words mean different things according to which sentences they're in and, and what the conversation is and who the deliverer and receiver of, of that data is at that time. Um, I know that there are people who are, uh, are really struggling to um, use those words in any way different from how they think they're best used and are then using that to undermine the validity of, of uh, data collected using those words or, or even communicating using those words. And I think, I think that's missing, I think it's missing the point. But I always enjoy thinking about those things, you know. I, I, really, in, I really enjoy thinking about what does someone mean when they say, I've got this sensation of of uh, bugs crawling along my back, you know, or ants or uh, sensation of pins and needles. And I enjoy thinking about, so is that a, is that a sense? Uh, and I would, I would think, oh, I don't think it is. I think your brain's creating the perception of that because that is a, is a potential explanation for the data it's receiving within the context and, and on the basis of stored knowledge and in, internal models of things. Mm. I so I don't if, think it's um, wrong for us to discuss these things. I just think sure. um, if it's if it's not constructive. Yeah, there is a, there's a temptation sometimes to, to maybe be pursuing it as a means of then dismissing certain either schools of thought, people and research, or, 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 or because of what seems maybe a pedantic obsession with language. I think what, sure. what, what you've described there as well with regards to what patients will say. And so even the, you know, I, you know, I feel pain. Um, and and then sometimes the pain as a sensation, as that word is best understood by particularly lay public, might be more attractive in some ways. Not that pain is attractive to anyone, but certainly it's more attractive yeah. a, a, an understanding of it than perception, which they would therefore, and, and, and certainly something I encountered when I was a bit clumsier with the use of illusions or um, you're trying to help people to, to, to comprehend the fact that unfortunately you can be misled by your, um, by other sensations and, and say, when we're using visual illusions to help people to comprehend the fact that sometimes you can, you can be misled for want of a better term, then that's where, um, it, it's it's sometimes with some people um, not as an attractive a concept to then start to comprehend the arguments for perception amongst patients then experiencing what they feel uh, they prefer the story we might tell ourselves over over sensation. Not that that should then move us in terms of what is empirically true, but it's definitely something that we we wouldn't want for us to rush too far away from where the public might be on something. And that's where, why I was felt really tempted to ask you that question in a way is because as we started the conversation, we described your breadth across from the pragmatic application of this work through, of course, then to the, um, to the pursuit of, 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 of knowledge in its, in its basic science form means that then 
I imagine that the, the we don't want a massive gap to bridge between the public and, and, and say therapists and scientists on this. And that if we can't use language in an appropriate way that would help them to understand why we're saying these things and to not seem dismissed by perception when they feel sensation means it's possibly then in that context worth us sometimes getting into the detail of what we're meaning by terms. Yeah, hundred percent. I, I think I follow, and um, uh, I think I concur. So, <laughs> just to <laughs> just to make sure that I haven't misunderstood, um, you know, I, two two clever, well-meaning, highly informed uh, healthcare professionals uh, could use uh, very different words for the same thing, right? Um, and words, and they look upon the words chosen by the other person and think, that's so wrong. How dare that person use that word? It's so it's not that at all. Uh, and then we, we, these two health professionals go to the same fictional patient and we, ex, we do our best to give them an understanding of what's going on inside them. And we use these, these words that drive each other nuts, right? <laughs> Uh, but we present them to the patient within the context of a caring, uh, clinically reasoned, um, empowering interaction that's respectful of that patient and uses all these communication skills that, that go way beyond our, our words. And both of those healthcare professionals impart positive and probably an accurate, reasonably accurate understanding of the situation. And what I think um, can happen in our field is that we, the, you know, put my fingers up like I'm doing quotation marks around the word, but we, the experts, uh, I think we we can we can both over overestimate our own expertise and underestimate our own expertise. And and what I mean by that is, uh, oh, to explain what I mean by that, uh, I'll recount. Uh, some of the research we've been doing looking at the interactions that people are having within one-to-one um, -one clinical sort of understanding pain type encounters versus um, patients who encounter a digitized version or, or text version of something. Uh, and uh, I think the, where we might underestimate our expertise is in the breadth of our capacity to communicate um and and that we can we can take a uh, a bunch of words and communicate them to someone and impart an understanding that if we used exactly the same words written down on a piece of paper they wouldn't impart any understanding at all or they might even impart the wrong understanding so it, i think it's very important for us to um to remember that uh, offering information or slogans or metaphors um, or other um, text-based or word-based tools of imparting information within the context of understanding the person in front of you, uh, knowing a bit about their story, uh, having a healthy respect for them and empathy and all that, is very different to using exactly the same slogans and metaphors um, put on a flyer or sent around on Twitter or 
mm. something like that. I think, yeah, and any implication that the total failure in one of those formats implies that it won't work in the other format is, in my view, j- just naive to to humans, human interactions, and 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 all the skills that we all develop over the course of our lives and in clinical practice over the course of our clinical practice in communicating. Anyway, I've, got, I've, I've gone off topic a bit there. I no, no, I think that, that that only highlights the the fact that then we, one of the phrases I've found myself using increasingly, especially the last five years or so, is just cut each other some slack. Jeez, like just we've got to give each other room to communicate and to, to, to learn and to shape it and to not set off certain tripwires. And, and that applies across the board, but particularly when grappling with such complex topics that, of course, we're it's 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 fairly young stuff you know we're developing it and we're understanding it and we've we've learned some lessons but god there's so much more to know and therefore uh, to, to sometimes nitpick can be sort of pedantry at its at its worst of these things that we're talking about into the depths of, of say neuroscience and, uh, and and where it intersects of course with philosophy and language how i suppose how important is it for clinicians to understand the latest and greatest in in neuroscience when applying this with patients in your opinion mm, i don't know i really don't know um and i i don't know if anyone knows and um if if we're saying the the outcomes on which on which we base whether or not it's important uh whether they it improves the lives of the patient in front of us, then I don't I, I don't think we know how how informed we have to be on that. And there are certainly there are certainly occasions when um, someone in trouble seeks care from someone who's very uninformed and uh, subscribes to empirically disproved. Is that a word? Is that the word? You know, mm-hmm. empirically refuted mm. understandings of the problem, um, and they they offer care or treatment based on those refuted understandings of the problem, and the and the person gets better. Mm-hmm. There's you know, there's clear evidence of that. Um, so clearly, it's not it's not critical for a positive short term clinical outcome. Um, but you asked the question of how important it is, and and I guess that it, it feels like that's a question for the individual healthcare professional, uh, and whether you know how does how does being as deeply informed as you can be um, align with your values in how you want to approach the, your healthcare interactions? Um, for me, it's very important, uh, and. Therefore, I will, I'll always be attracted towards trying to understand things better, uh, and and trying to trying not to um, not to miss. Try. I'm trying to work out what my words are here, Jack. I think I I feel like for for me to offer the best care to another person even in a non-clinical sense, but for me to be good, who I want to be, I want to be informed as I can be. And if there are, if there's good knowledge out there and relevant knowledge out there, I'd like to, I'd like to know that knowledge Hmm. and bring it into that interaction. And there's probably healthcare professionals for whom that's not important. 
um, they might have different motivators or they might, yeah, a range of reasons. But I think the question is for the individual healthcare professional to to answer. Some Somewhere in there, there are the, the thresholds of um, legal responsibility, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. accreditation threshold, um well, I suppose it's then there's, there's, something a bit, there's something then a bit vaguer, isn't there? Because there are levels, definitely. But there's one beyond sort of legal duty. And then there's one of just sort of contemporary competence, I could say, which is going to be, of course, mm-hmm. as, as, as vague as the phrase is. But what I'm getting at there is it seems only right with the technologies and access to updated information for people to have moved away from, say, a tissue-centric um, and, and fairly narrow cause effect damage equals pain but having broadened their horizons and understood then and and maybe got a collection of of analogies and metaphor that they might use with patients to help them to broaden their horizons of the fact that it's not quite like that it's not that you've worn something out or damaged something it's broken and that's what it needs to heal and therefore that will then resolve the problem they've kind of broadened the horizons on that they're helping patients to comprehend that but they may not, they then sometimes get addled with the guilt of perhaps then having that and, and functioning with that and, and, and getting results with that. But then to hear that neuroscience has, has not necessarily moved on, but has developed then an understanding through via, say, uh, how does predictive processing intersect with this? How might I best understand the free energy principle? Some very complex, high-end topics for some people that would feel so clinically distant for them that intimidates them into them wondering how often should I be doing a fresh course or reading a fresh book in such a way that that's kind of what, again, is underneath my question. Like how contemporary must someone's knowledge be or, or is there a gap between the jobbing clinician in MSK and, say, the likes of yourself that is not just acceptable but sensible for the sake of not burdening a clinician with, with some of the detail? Yeah, great. Uh, I, I really like that question because it, it almost takes us full circle to how we started this conversation and and about the work that I do and my sense that um, a science, that science is only as good as its ability to change humans, um, and I think that there that part of the responsibility on on people like me in jobs like mine is to um, identify what it is about what we're learning that stands to to improve clinical care and to have a way of communicating that. Um, that is enabling and empowering of healthcare professionals to ultimately just Im- improve their well-being and hopefully through the pathway of of greater self-efficacy and and delivering better care. Um, I think that we in the pain field we we haven't we definitely haven't always got that right. Um, I think from my own perspective, I I discovered in my own clinical interactions that imparting a a degree of neuroscientific understanding to patients was associated with with health benefit. Uh, And I did randomized controlled trials on that, which which concurred. Uh, And then I mentioned at the start that, you know, said what's most exciting. And I said, I'm on this really steep learning curve about uh, how to impart um, 
understanding of, of one's own biology and, and I guess one's own scientific makeup to improve oneself in the context of a clinical interaction. Um, but also a part of that steep learning curve is understanding what, what information is actually helpful for the patient. And my current view on that is that um, I reckon I could get, I could have been having as good clinical responses without going into as much depth. Um, and I'm learning more about that at the moment. And our research group, one of the lines of research that we're doing is, is relying on consumers who have recovered from chronic pain to tell us what are the most important aspects of pain science to learn that that empower them, enable them to recover. Um, and the reason we do that is also linked to your question around perception versus sensation. And my own view uh, is that, well, the consumer should be telling us what words we use and what words are, are most likely to land. And, and we might have a core set of words that that we use that is directed by consumers. So that's we're very engaged in that space at the moment. But to, to bring it back to the question about the healthcare professional, and you talked about, you know, do they, do they now have to update with the 5Es model and predictive processing systems and all that? Um, my view is that until we, we, the scientific community, and maybe the thinking community, I'm not sure. I mean, a lot of this conversation out there at the moment is, uh, I, th I feel like it's pretty embryonic, you know. It, it, hasn't, it hasn't delivered a really clear clinically implementable framework or treatment or anything that's any different. Uh, so it's up to people like in my scientific community to to take very seriously the role of of packaging of knowledge into usable bits. And uh, my feeling at the moment is is that there are really significant usable bits that are coming out of pain science. Uh, but those usual usable bits are, I reckon, actually not so much updates of, of say, biological science. Um, they're more updates of what the consumers are saying is important in the biological science sciences mm. and ways of thinking about that. So, you know, I, uh, I ran a couple of these master sessions things um, last year and again this year in May around you know fairly high level understanding of of contemporary thought in how the brain works and there's a bit of predictive processing stuff in there and what I was very conscious of in that was what is it about this new newish I mean it's not it's actually not that new but the um, it's fashionable predictive process, what, what does it offer us that can actually make our clinical lives better? And uh, I find that's a question that I'm much more comfortable answering myself because I still, I still see patients and I, and I see patients who I, I'm really challenged by clinically. And I see some of this stuff in predictive processing. Yeah, if, if well, I can see how that can make my life uh, a bit better as a clinician and to deliver better care. And then I try and package that in a way that I can share with other healthcare professionals who don't have 
jobs doing the stuff that I do. <laughs> mm. They have jobs that are taken up entirely with delivering care to, to people in trouble. So it is my job to package it in a way that can help. And until we can package it in that way, I, I don't think we should be trying to sell it anywhere, you know? Um, mm. Yeah, yeah. And that I mean, translation, because some people got an aversion to translation because they feel it would water down the raw message of the of the hard science, and so it's this. Uh, we know that done done badly, translation could sort of condescend and, and lose the end, you know, the, the the complete meaning of something. But but done properly, of course, sure. there's, there's it needs to be applicable and and for us to actually then not be not just be pursuing the health of people in 20 years time as you said there's there's a there's a here and now and people suffering Uh, and i think that 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 does make sense you've you've got a master session coming up on pain and performance so less pain better performance and it sometimes surprises people and i remember being surprised myself a number of years ago when i observed your work being applied to elite sport i remember an early not not an early study necessarily of yours but an early study that i observed uh, amongst elite cyclists where you'd changed the visual field uh, and, and adjusted and noted uh, pain differences in in that based on 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 angle um, and I, I just think that maybe perhaps a misconception of your work being applied to persistent pain and, and complex chronic pain um, whereas actually of course it can be applied to anyone that's experiencing sort of pain and suffering in, in, in any context and how of course pain would inf- impair performance so I wondered if do you consider performance and, and high-end say sporting performance as simply a functional end of a continuum of, of, of what someone is asking of their body or do you see it as somewhat unique at all uh, compared to say a layman? Um, uh, I think it <laughs> uh, I definitely think the first um, in that I think um, elite performers uh, are just asking more of their body and getting more out of out of their body than than others. I see quite a few similarities between elite performers and and industrial athletes you know people who are also getting a lot out of their body day after day mm. after day um and but then the second part of the question was about unique and and i think you know some of these people they they are almost unique in the in the mix of uh, it might be talk production or uh, motor coordination but it might also be um, and this is where I think it gets really, in, well, it's always really interesting, but this is a particular area of interest of mine, or, or it might just be in their, um, their system's threshold for acting in self-protection mode versus acting in performance mode. And I've worked with elite performers from a, a wide range of contexts for many years, actually, and in fact, uh, I was working with elite performers before I did my PhD and before I really right. got into the persistent pain space. In fact, my first my first job as a physiotherapist was with the, the New South Wales Academy of Sport looking after endurance athletes and my undergraduate degree was in biomechanics and physiotherapy. So I had an honours in biomechanics and um, it was really a shift from that context for most of my attention over into... A, a different context. So rather than helping the the silver medalists get gold medals, 
uh, I became more and more attracted towards helping the 45-year-old woman with three kids cleaner who can't pay the bills. Mm. Uh, and that, and and then from there, you know, torture survivors and all this sort of stuff that, for me, very academically um, engaging, challenging and aligning with, with a lot of what makes me tick. But I've never let go of the elite performance interaction and... Um, you know, most of my well, yeah, most of my work in elite performance has been with people who are staring down the barrel of of early retirement because of persistent pain, or because of this this competing objective in their system of pain and pain or performance. And I think that's where the the principles of the human still apply because these people are humans, right? Mm. And I think about how contemporary models of how the brain works uh, become higher stakes when the sa- it's the same brain that is is needing to generate outputs in order to win the competition or whatever it is, uh, as at exactly the same time as that brain is is strategizing to keep this human safe. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the idea of the size of the protective buffer that pain offers uh, is in, I, I see no evidence before me in across the basic sciences that um, elite athletes have fundamentally different um, f- functional neuroimmunology, if you like. Yeah. Um, so... There, my and and the best results I've ever got with elite performers uh, is has been around embracing this stuff and in the first instance, um, <laughs> treating these people like humans, uh, rather than you know some sort of non non human performance machine. Typically, the more high end the performance, the more tissue centric the care model. In part because of them being seen as machines, we 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 find that language. We do apply that language and the, the language of machines and mechanics across all humans more than we should. But certainly in elite performance, that I mean, it's like it's a compliment to say, "Oh, that 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 tough tackling midfielder, what a machine, and what what an athlete." It can sometimes mean be synonymous. And therefore, it does seem that um, you know we, we know from injuries and, and pain that well, we'll see what the scan says within minutes of an injury is is pervasive across elite sport, but also therefore trickles down. So, do you still? I mean, perhaps I want to invite in case you you do want to disagree with that, uh, but but also if if that is the case in your opinion too, how might we change that paradigm? And is it tougher in that environment? Yeah, I, well, I, I do agree with the statement that. <laughs> In fact, I um, I'm of the firm belief, and I think with good reason, that the higher the athlete's uh, salary or prestige, the more likely that athlete is to receive a, a really biomedically focused care. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, th- I find that interesting in, in so many ways, so many ways. Um I think that the uh, the model of the athlete as as a machine is, I think, certainly in my interactions, it's it's waning 
because um, there are sufficient, there, there are just sufficient numbers of athletes who uh, are clearly uh, clearly experiencing pain, um, although the tissues of that body part are amazing, and their ability to um, com- their command over that body part remains amazing in in certain contexts and. You know, so some of the work that I've done, we you know we've we've uh, looked at positive scan findings in asymptomatic thighs versus symptomatic thighs, and uh, we published a paper. Um, first author I think was Simon Summers or Sarah Woolwork on on evidence that the the neural representations of the body and of the space around the body were disrupted in. In, in very high level elite athletes, um, you know, absolute top of their game in their sports, uh, in exactly the same way as we find in people who are, you know, not, not working because of their chronic back pain for 10 years. And for me, these are manifestations of biological systems that have been honed over generations and generations in evolution. And our elite performers are not, are not separate from that evolutionary pathway um but is it more difficult yeah i think i think it is it, oh, is it more difficult yeah, there's 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 yeses and no's so the yeses are that um the that mindset penetrates across the performance world particularly in the physical performance world um you know strength and conditioning teams that that are all about that sort of machine model and and coaches who well, I did it this way and then you should do it this way that's all that sort of stuff the injection mentality the scan mentality all that sort of stuff and I think all those things have have a role and the the work that I do interfaces very closely with sort of scans and numbers metrics and all that um but the the other side where it's 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 not more difficult is that these are often highly resourced organizations right. where another week off the pitch is a hundred thousand pounds or uh, another week off the court uh, reduces potential prize money by a million bucks and mm. the stakes here are so high that when when the evidence is presented uh, and 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 the data suggests they're going in the right direction then you can quickly have have some transformational change, transformational changes across high performance teams or even across the entire organization but yeah. i think the entire organization certainly in professional um professional sport the entire organization needs to come for the ride to get optimal outcomes i wonder if um i might be at risk of making a, a potentially dated sort of wind up like argument but is there is this something to be said for or do we have evidence that might support a theory that, that patients and athletes that are going to be very in tune with their body and and almost the amazing things that they're able to achieve means that they are more likely if that if that function is disrupted to have a system and as an organism be naturally attentive then to its dysfunction as well as they are the acute and very precise nature of their ability and performance. Is, is there anything that would, would support that? 
Yeah, broadly, I think there is. And um, we've got we've got three people presenting on master sessions in November that, that speak around this issue, and it's, it's really interesting. And uh, I think the broad principle that I would apply with that issue is that it all depends, and it depends on the individual athlete as well as their their context or, or performer. So one of those three people presenting at master sessions is Dr. Bronwyn Ackerman. Bronwyn's done some really interesting work and has worked for a long time with elite musical performers. Uh, and and they are, they are obviously uh, very in tune with their body within the context of their music. Uh, mm. And so much so that they, some of them, she tells me, some of them report dysfunction in their system because of the tomba of the, is that how you say that word, the, the timber? Anyway, the sound that they notice is, is different which gives them the cue that there's dysfunction in the system. And, um, and, and others have this incredibly precise connection with their body within the context of music, and it's almost like they're totally disconnected outside of that context. But then she will tell me that there are others who uh, manage to keep, because of their elite, elite capacity, can hide a a dystonia that would disable the average person uh, for months and sometimes years and still perform at this extraordinary level. And this, this dystonia is, is a neurological disconnection mm. with with a body part. Uh, another person who's presenting is Dr. Ebony Rio. Um, Ebony's got a very strong reputation internationally for her work in tendinopathy. Uh, and she's really taken that field towards embracing a more you know, unified human understanding. And she does a lot of work with um, professional ballet dancers uh, and and observes quite similar things that some of them uh, will not, you know, will get to the stage where they won't even look in the direction of their painful foot because they become so disconnected. But at the same time, they have an extraordinary awareness of the space around them and where their body is in space. And yeah. um, that becomes a very useful assessment um, context uh, for for someone like Ebony because uh, by by charging or loading the system with threats outside of the body space, so they might be you know some psychosocial threat as an assessment. The elite level dancer, um, because they're working at such a high spatial acuity level, uh, Ebony can see that compromise quickly. Mm. Um, you know, and, and it's just like every other human in that psychosocial threats are threats, you know, they're real life nerve impulses and uh, changed, they change activation gradients within the brain. And, and then the, the third person that, that I was thinking of was Leanne Rath, who uh, has also done a lot of work with dancers, but now works more with, with older athletes who are um, yeah, almost like upper level recreational athletes. But some of the things that happen in older athletes include um, a, a reduction in the capacity of neuroimmune, individual neuroimmune systems, which which makes this idea of connecting with your body uh, slightly more challenging, like it does with with lots of stuff. Um, so all you know, all three of these things speak to the uh, the opportunity that is offered working with performers with elite capacity uh, and by capacity I don't just mean aerobic or torque production but also you know motor output and 
spatial acuity, all that sort of stuff. The opportunities that, that, that are presented by that, but also the challenges that are presented. And, you know, the whole reason I've gathered the people I have for master sessions, uh, less pain, better performance, is that they have been working in this space, not, not just with elite performers, but with recreational athletes. Uh, as well, um, and industrial athletes. But they've been doing that for a long time. And and they're examples of people who, like me, want to bring the very best of contemporary science into their care. Uh, and the way they do that is, in my view, really cool. But obviously, I think it's really cool because I, I think a bit like they do. <laughs> sure. No, I think but the, the balance of what we've just described there of there being a, a strong case for the fact that this is the upper limit of, of, of human function and therefore is still the baseline, um, you know, the, getting the basics right and understanding and comprehending that and how it applies across the spectrum of human performance. But then there is also some of the self-selecting elements and, and, and unique features that we might need to consider when it comes to some of those really intricate high performance variables. And so I'm, I'm excited to see how you and your team explore that in full. Uh, for those that are interested, go to lesspainbetterperformance.com, sign up and snap those tickets up as quickly as you can, because as, uh, as Lauren was just describing, it sounds like an absolute belter and hugely well regarded the, the master sessions in general. So it's amazing to see you apply, uh, apply this because it'd be tempting to wash, rinse, repeat your existing model, just uh, just doing the uh, doing some of the same old things. So I love it when you freshen it up so so radically in this instance. So thank you for doing that, and thank you for doing all that you do. Uh, we're so lucky to have you thinking in this direction. Um, it's amazing when we have uh, one of our own of a sorts in physiotherapy and, and, and in the MSK space that that is so renowned across such breadth as we talked about at the start. And so I want to just make sure I get the chance to thank you on behalf of the listeners, because a lot of times when we when we ask after knowing people that knew that this conversation was happening, there were some people didn't send questions. They just said, say, say thank you from me. <laughs> and so it's amazing how many people oh. are super appreciative of what you've done for us all and, and continue to do. So thanks for your time again. Today. Oh, that's that's really generous, Jack. Thank you so much. And um, thanks to everyone. I mean, I'd, it's a great opportunity to to engage with people like yourself and then the people who are listening. And I'd like to return that sentiment that uh, thank you guys for doing what you do on the coalface and uh, actually improving lives each day. Uh, I don't take that for granted for a second. And I think it, it takes both of us uh, to move the field forward. So mutual admiration society. <laughs> Fantastic. No, thank you very much. And uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks a lot, Jack. You have a, you have a cracker. Thank you very much. And there you have it. Oh, it's good to be back. I really enjoyed that. Really enjoyed getting that time with someone just to get into it and, and hear them out more thoroughly. I've been doing sort of 30 minute shows for quite a while now. And so, yeah, it was really nice to be able to throw that together as a special. Um, so I hope you enjoyed it. Please do let us know. Really keen always to hear your feedback. Be sure to get over to lesspainbetterperformance.com to check out what Lauren and his team have got in store for you in November. That is an absolutely cracking session planned. Um, and also, if you're a member already, you are in for an absolute treat. 
We have just updated physio-matters.com as our membership site, a full new software update, and we now have every piece of content that's been transcribed, so everything is then searchable. Um, every piece that we've ever produced and will go on to produce is now available um, on our most user-friendly site yet, and so we'll be transferring you over. If you are interested in joining us and you want the ultimate MSK content library, over a 1,000 hours of content, that is now uh, for everything's got its own sort of certificates and is really trackable and it's got all linked by content topic and yeah just glorious you're gonna you're gonna absolutely love it that's at physio-matters.com forward slash join and you will be able to join us there and as as we've always done is that anyone that's ever joined our membership they have never seen their prices go up. And so we will always honor the price of which you join us on. Uh, and that includes now. So it's £15 a month, 150 for the year. And if you uh, sign up, um, if you sign up now, you will always have that price honored as long as you continue with us. We're, we're keen to try and make that as, as affordable as possible. Uh, and so we're, we're really pleased with it. And we, we know you will be too. So uh, looking forward to that. Also, therapy-live.co.uk. Eyes peeled on there uh, shortly for our World Cup special. We're going to do, just before the World Cup, Football World Cup, we're going to do a special event uh, on sort of football sports medicine. And, um, and and really, obviously, we're massive football fans here and so excited about the World Cup. But also, it's also a premium time for thinking in the direction of, of how we can help uh, footballers of all of all levels, especially after the summer we've had with the Lionesses and stuff. So we've got some great plans for some football-specific content there that we're going to do in late November. Uh, that will be quite an exclusive event. Uh, so you will want to snap up tickets, especially because our members will be getting first access to those. So do sign up at physio-matters.com uh, for your membership to get first dibs on our latest Therapy Live special. So that's enough from me. Thank you so much. Thank you, of course, to Lorimer. Hope you enjoyed the, this episode of Physio Matters. And as I said, good to be back in the saddle and also the opportunity for me to say you've been listening to the Physio Matters podcast discussing Physio Matters because Physio matters. Bye for now. <laughs>